Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andrea Show, and thanks so much for tuning in here with me today. It is Friday, May the 8th. Got a good show lined up for you here today. At the end of the program, I'm going to be taking a look at what's going on when it comes to the film industry. Yeah, there was some filming that was set to take place in the Thompson-Nicola Regional District. We saw some work on Jurassic World 3 and Merit. There was also some filming of the Twilight Zone television series in Ashcroft already that took place this year. But there were other projects set for the area that have yet to film. Shows like Van Helsing were set to do some work in the area as well. So is that going to happen? Well, I'll be joined by the TNRD Film Commissioner at the end of the show to talk a little bit about that. And coming up in just a little bit, I'll be joined by Andrew Longhurst with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives to talk about yesterday's news around surgeries in B.C. and the backlog that has been created as a result of the Ministry of Health putting on hold all those non-essential surgeries during COVID-19. But to begin today's show, while well, I'm joined by policy analyst for the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, the B.C. office, Muriel Protzer. Muriel, how are you doing here today? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks so much for having CFIB on. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. So uh, I guess I'll just start by asking for your initial reaction to uh, the restart plan for the province. And, uh, you know, what what's the re- initial reaction here from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business? I assume, you know, so, some positivity here. Yeah, having a reopening plan was very much needed in BC. We needed to give business owners more certainty and clarity on their future and as well encourage British Columbians that there is a path back to normality and we did see that with this reopening plan. You know, the sun is shining more and more each day. I can't wait to get on a patio with some good food, beer in hand and it looks like we will be able to do that in the next couple of weeks. We've been waiting for this reopening plan for quite some time now, a few weeks here and this is a big moment for local businesses. And and I mean a lot of details I think maybe were, were sort of left out in terms of how businesses can start to go about reopening. So, I mean, is this going to be from your perspective and this is kind of how i'm interpreting it is that it's going to be sort of up to individual sectors to figure out how their best path forward is going to work is that sort of how you interpret things as well yeah, so the province of BC has worked with WorkSafe BC to ensure that there are industry-specific guidelines in place and working with industry associations to make sure that they make sense for those types of businesses. And this is definitely what we wanted to see from our own survey data. We know that the vast majority of small business owners much prefer having general guidelines in place than prescriptive rules, and that is what we are seeing in the reopening plan. So, well, I guess what, what do we look for over the next couple of weeks? I mean, uh, you know, we're looking towards the long weekend. After the long weekend is when things can kind of start to reopen, right? We see provincial parks are going to start kind of opening a little bit prior to the long weekend, but it's post that May long when we're going to see things really start to kick in. Um, so I guess, I, I mean, I, I assume your, your members or the people that you're hearing from independent business owners, uh, is there's going to be probably a lot of um, planning that needs to be taking place here over the next little while to make sure that individual businesses, whether they're a restaurant or a, a retailer, that they have the proper protocols in place for physical distancing and things like that. So, um, I mean, uh, probably a lot of discussion that needs to take place here over the next couple of weeks. 
Yes, definitely. Definitely. For small business owners right now, it is very important they familiarize themselves with the guidelines that have been put in place by WorkSafe BC. Um, in addition to that, it's important that they develop a physical plan, something that they have in writing, um, that they have in their business. WorkSafe BC has outlined a document. It's called Return to Safe Operation. It's something that you as an employer can fill out. It gives you exactly what you're going to be doing on a day-to-day in terms of sanitation, communication with employees. And it's very important that you have this physical document because if a WorkSafe inspector or someone comes by and you don't have that plan in writing, that could be a problem. So it's really important for employers right now. Know the guidelines. And if you do have any questions about it, you can reach out to CFIB. We have a website right now, CFIB.ca slash COVID-19, uh, where you can reach out to us with any questions. We're here to help you figure out those guidelines, make sure that you are in compliance. Uh, what are you hearing? Uh, I know like when we had talked last, I believe it was maybe three weeks ago or so, and we talked about the survey talking about how like one third, I believe it was, of small business owners didn't feel like they'd be able to come out of this. I mean, has that changed? Was this plan maybe start to shift some of those attitudes at all? Yeah, we're continuing to issue surveys weekly to our members who are small and medium-sized business owners. We have another one going out this weekend. Um, that's when we'll really understand how this BC reopening plan is being interpreted uh, by small business owners. Right now, we do see that 25% of businesses in BC are closed, with another 25% operating at a reduced capacity. So with this reopening plan in place, we're expecting to this for this to install some more confidence in business owners, and now that they can see the light at the end of the tunnel get those plans in place to reopen their doors again uh with with a partial reopening do you know what details are missing what do you need more clarity on right now yeah right now i think we definitely need more clarity on what sort of mandatory rules will be in place for installing physical measures like plexiglass I know I've seen them at a lot of grocery stores, for example, but we do need some more clarification on where that will be mandatory and additional um, equipment such as personal protective equipment for businesses. Um, that's really important for businesses in the healthcare uh, professionals or personal service establishments, for example, where they are in close contact with their patients or clients and understanding how those businesses can source this equipment. It may be a lot easier for businesses in the lower mainland, but as you move further out from there uh, to areas areas like Prince George or Terrace, supply chains get a lot more complicated. And so we do need some more communication from the province on how these businesses can source this equipment so they can prepare for it and also finance for it because we're not quite clear yet on whether this will be provided at cost, uh, provided for free, or these are all questions that Mm -hmm. are going uh, through business owners' minds right now. Yeah, so not necessarily uh, aware of any programs, I guess at this point, if people are forced to sort of retrofit their business to be able to uh, follow all the guidelines that are going to be put in place, you know, probably going to need some type of help, I would think, for some of these business owners who are probably going to be out a, a few dollars from their pocket as they try to adapt and change throughout this whole process. Yeah, absolutely. And there's still a lot of small businesses that are falling through the cracks. For example, there is the federal loan program. It's a really great program. It's essentially a $40,000 loan, 10,000 portion that's forgivable. It's paid before the end of 2022. Um, Really great way to access financing for businesses, but there's still a lot of businesses who can't even apply to this program because you have to have payroll between $20,000 and one and a half million. A lot of small businesses maybe have one, two employees, um, part-time for that matter, or pay themselves through dividends if it's just themselves running the business. So there's there's still a lot falling through the cracks. 
um, and they do need support as well. We've seen other provinces, Manitoba, for example, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, who've come out with additional programs, either it's a loan or a direct financing for small businesses um, to get some, some liquid cash for them to be able to absorb some of these extra costs to pay for um, necessary equipment and protective measures. Uh, so we really are calling on the, the province here to take a look at those programs and see if we could implement something similar here. And uh, I wanted to go back a little bit just to that survey uh, briefly, right, where we talked about how 25% of businesses in British Columbia were closed. I assume that those are a lot of the businesses that might be, you know, worried about the potential to get through uh, the, the pandemic and be able to come out on the other side and, and reopen business. I mean, as we go through this partial reopen. Opening. I'm sure it's probably not really known right now, but I assume a lot of those 25%, like I said, are probably the ones that were concerned about not being able to come through this. Uh, is a partial reopening enough or is this sort of maybe something that once we get into the middle of May and the end of May and, and start to go into June and see how this kind of uh, restart of the economy is really rolling out, do you think we'll have a better idea of just how uh, affected and how impacted people will be at that point? Yeah, for businesses who have been ordered to close, for example, right now, having this reopening plan and the ability to work with WorkSafe BC on, you know, what guidelines they can put in place to get their business up and running again, uh, for example, those personal service, hairdressers, uh, tattoo artists. That's really important uh, in the reopening plan, and we're very happy to see that there is a timeline. Even though we don't have a fixed date, um, it's still really important that we do have a timeline and there is some clarity for those businesses so they can start preparing. Now, that being said, we need more than just uh, a couple days' notice when these businesses can open. Like mm -hmm. I said, these phases that the BC economy will start to reopen, there's two to four weeks between each one, and that will be determined by the province and the provincial health officer um, as we see the pandemic pandemic continue to evolve in the province. And so it's really important that when we, we do make that decision at the provincial level, okay, yes, these businesses are opening, that they are given sufficient notice because they have a lot to prepare for right now. For example, sourcing that protective uh, equipment for their employees or gathering financing, just getting ramped up to get their employees back in the doors. These are, these are all uh, things that take time, so it's important that communication is clear. Well, thank you so much for the time. Really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll catch up next week and, and see what the results of this uh, next round of surveys brings about. I, I look forward to uh, hopefully being able to get some more detail there. So thanks so much. Absolutely. No problem. That was Muriel Protzer, policy analyst for BC for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And uh, just to, to note, during yesterday's daily COVID-19 press briefing, uh, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry did say that, you know, all businesses are not going to be required to submit restart plans to the province for approval, uh, but most uh, will probably be required to post their plans in their establishment in some way, shape, or form to show just how employees and customers are being cared for and, and make sure the uh, proper... Per protocols are in place to keep everyone safe uh, as we continue to go through this pandemic. Well, let's take a quick break and coming up, I'll be talking a little bit about surgeries here in BC. It was announced yesterday sort of how the province is going to be taking steps to uh, relaunch really all those non-essential surgeries that have been postponed as a result of COVID-19. I'll be joined by Andrew Longhurst with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives after this. So stick around and more Jeff Andrea's show will be back shortly. to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com.
Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for joining me here on a Friday. Now, the backlog caused by a two-month delay in elective surgeries from the COVID-19 pandemic is expected to take up to two years to clear here in British Columbia. The province says between March 16th and May 18th, there have been about 30,000 lost cases with 14,000 elective surgeries delayed and another 16,000 surgeries staying on the wait list, which would have been scheduled had it not been for the pandemic. I'm joined on the phone now by research associate with the BC Office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Andrew Longhurst. Andrew, thanks for taking the time. Great to be with you, Jeff. So I want to just start by getting your initial thoughts here on, uh, you know, what was announced uh, yesterday here on Thursday, just talking about how it's going to take up to two years, really, to uh, make up for what we've seen lost here over the last two months. I mean, that's pretty substantial. Two months delay in surgeries is causing a, a two-year addition to, to the scheduling process. I mean, were you surprised by that number, first and foremost? It is significant, and I think it really just underscores how uh, prepared uh, BC and, you know, kudos to the BC government and our provincial health officer for ensuring that we had uh, excess capacity in uh, our hospitals to be able to prepare for a COVID-19 surge. Um, thankfully, we didn't see that, but the, the knock-on effect was uh, elective or scheduled surgeries and procedures had to be postponed. And for a lot of people, that is obviously um, very difficult because a lot of people are, you know, they're waiting, they have pain, um, they have, uh, they, they're waiting for a surgery or diagnostic imaging, a whole variety of scheduled procedures that have been postponed. So it's a big number. I think it just speaks to the fact that um, there was really uh, thoughtful and, uh, and 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 smart planning initially, and now we're going to have to come out of that. Um, so I think moving forward, it's going to be really important that we um, are really thoughtful and we're transformative in terms of how we um, get back to uh, getting uh, patients back into the operating room, uh, getting them into their diagnostic imaging appointments, and working down the backlog, but also as we do it, making more efficient use of um, our surgical and diagnostic resources in the province. And I think there's some uh, lessons to be learned, certainly from BC and uh, across the country and internationally about how to do that. And as we hear more, I think, about the surgical plan, we've seen a, a bit of it. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping that we see more fleshed out in terms of how uh, we're going to do that, because it could mean that we actually work down the backlog faster than two years. And uh, one of the things that, you know, that kind of ties back to is you, you helped author this paper, the, the problems with private for-profit delivery of surgical services. And, uh, you know, part of this paper talks about how BC can learn from other jurisdictions in Canada and abroad, like you had just mentioned, and that included uh, Scotland's ambitious work to significantly reduce wait times and improve health outcomes over the past 20 years. Uh, can you maybe just give me a, a quick rundown? I mean, that's probably a difficult thing to do when, when trying to, you know, summarize uh, talking about surgery here, but how can we learn from Scotland and other jurisdictions here? What is it about their process that seems to be working well that potentially BC could learn from? That's right. So uh, Scotland, much like BC, um, was facing many of the same wait time challenges as our province. And they started um, very ambitiously, but uh, knew that it would take time. But what they did is they set in place um, a lot of policy strategies that we haven't taken very seriously here in British Columbia. There's been um, efforts, and I would say uh, this is not just a BC problem, but it's often said that 
that uh, Canada is a country of, of many pilot projects. We often develop some evidence-based initiatives within our public system. Uh, so this might be making uh, ORs more efficient in terms of being able to have more surgeries done uh, within uh, a day. Uh, this might be, uh, for example, uh, what are called single entry models or first available surgeon models where we actually administratively streamline the process of waiting so that you're not waiting on an individual wait list. You're actually uh, going through a central referral system. And so what we know from the research evidence and again from what we've seen in Scotland um, and examples here in Canada in pockets is that this significantly reduces weight and, and the variation. So one of the issues that Minister Dix talked about is um, those that are waiting longest, we're going to prioritize them. One of the issues when, when because we haven't reformed how we organize surgical services in this province across the board, the issue is that many patients wait on an individual surgeon's wait list. And yet there may be an opening that uh, an equally qualified surgeon uh, could perform that surgery much more quickly. And so the point here is that by taking a system approach to how we address wait times, rather than this very much a kind of localized or, or having people wait on individual surgeons lists, it's a very inefficient way to organize the system. And increasingly, we know that we need to be moving in that direction and make that those sorts of models standard practice. And that's much of what Scotland has done um, and, and done it in a very consistent way. So to the, to the government's credit in 2018 here in BC, they released a surgical uh, and diagnostic strategy um, that uh, announced five um, hip and knee uh, patient pathways. So you would have pre and post-op care provided by a team. So including physiotherapist and OT to do the assessments if you actually were a surgical candidate. And then you would be referred on if you were a surgical candidate onto a surgeon's, uh, onto a group of surgeons wait list. But it's been very limited. And so again, it's just an example of why we need to really take these models seriously and we need to scale them up province-wide. Now, I mean, given what you just said, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense to take a system-wide approach as opposed to having people on the, on those wait lists, like you had mentioned, for individual surgeons. That seems um, kind of silly, right, when we're trying to speed through this process. And when we're talking right now about a 17th to 20, 17 to 24-month timeline to make up the backlog of surgeries, I mean, do you think that if we started taking that systematic approach that it would uh, maybe reduce that timeline to, to make up what's been lost here over two months? I think it very possibly could, and I think that's what we need to be. This is the time now uh, to be implementing all of these proven solutions and really take them seriously. So while I'm really pleased to see that the government is talking about expanding um, operating room capacity to be able to do a higher volume, so this means extending hours into the evening, working on weekends, um, those are really important. Um, but I think the bottom line here is we haven't put the focus that we need to on transforming and reorganizing how these services are delivered. And so I do think we could see um, significant gains if we're, if we're seriously implementing a lot of these strategies. Um, and it, and it, the reality here is it's in the patient's best interest. So we hear coming out of a lot of these models that patients say, you know, I really like this one-stop shop, this pathway. I know the team of providers, I work through it, I see a physiotherapist. The reality is a lot of folks also don't need to be on a surgeon's wait list for a consultation. And that's one of the findings that we've seen from a, a good model here in British Columbia was that 
a lot of people could be better supported uh, through physio, occupational therapy, um, working to self-manage their condition. So if they have arthritis, they may actually not need a joint replacement. So a lot of these models are intended to be um, thinking about a more holistic approach that's team-based, but creates these efficiencies. And that's really what we need to be looking to um, as we go forward. And I think this is the time uh, to be bold and to really implement these solutions now. Well, and, and when you when you talk about how, you know, it's really a kind of a, 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 a showing its need right now, right, as we look at what's happened here over the past month and a half, two months with uh, with what's been delayed um, and, and how long it's going to take to make that up. And this is all just, uh, you know, when we're talking about this 17 to 24 month timeline, that's assuming that there really isn't a second wave of COVID-19. And I, um, you know, I fully expect that there will be some kind of a second wave, whether it comes in the fall or, or when, I don't know. But I I'm anticipating that there will be, uh, and that's going to really cause even bigger problems, I would think, or at least bigger wait times when it comes to getting these uh, quote-unquote non-essential surgeries back up and being delivered in a timely manner. I mean, do you have a fear of that, and and, um, do you think that this, what we're talking about now, is going to be highlighted even further if we do see another spike in COVID cases? Well, I think it it speaks to the fact that it can't just be ramping up the volume of surgeries that we need to be implementing these other system efficiencies and improvements at the same time. Uh, Because what we've seen in BC effectively, and this extends much across the country, is there have been short-term initiatives to increase capacity and volume of surgeries. And, and often, you know, for, for good reasons. I'm not saying that's not important. But what has not followed is a lot of these system efficiencies and improvements that will actually help us reduce weights over the medium and long term. So, as you said, it's very likely that COVID-19 is going to be with us uh, for the foreseeable future until a vaccine is widely available. We need to be prepared to not only just reduce wait times over the short term, but to be able to sustain those um Uh, wait time reductions over Mm -hmm. the longer term. And that's the concern here is we need to be basically doing everything that we can and that we know works um, to make that a reality for British Columbians. And I think the other uh, concern that I'd raise too is, you know, it's, it's, unfortunate that we're seeing a movement towards um, contracting with private surgical clinics when we haven't done all of this system improvement in our public operating rooms and in our diagnostic imaging. And so there are a lot of efficiencies that we need to look at. And we also need to optimize the team of care providers who are par- who are part of providing um, pre-surgical and post-surgical care. So again, looking at these team-based approaches where people are supported and what we see when you're supported with a broader team is you're actually, your, your outcome in surgery is, is going to be better. So your recovery may be shorter and we need to make sure that, for example, we have the, the rehab professionals, therapists in our hospitals uh, to be able to help people so we can discharge them from beds in our hospitals. So I think, again, we need a broader focus on that full team of healthcare professionals. And we also need, if we want to see improvements over the medium and longer term with COVID being with us uh, and for the foreseeable future, it can't just be um, increasing volumes. And, and I think certainly there are some risks that we should be uh, thinking about when we're contracting out surgeries, uh, especially as we know that a lot of professionals, uh, healthcare staff are working at multiple sites. So again, we get into some of these issues around 
infection control and needing to be very careful. Um, and hospitals we know have the infection control practices um, that are strong. They are staffed for them. And so I think we just need to be very thoughtful about all of the pieces and ingredients um, of a comprehensive strategy uh, to get people into surgery as fast as we can and to support them with other um supports if they're not uh, going into surgery and we also i'll just end on this we can't forget the diagnostic imaging piece we know that this is a significant part of um, being able to get into surgery quickly or determine if you're a surgical candidate Um, and we've seen positive efforts in that regard but we also need to think about uh, shortages of MRI technologists and others. It's Again, it's not just nurses and it's not just surgeons. There's a broader team that makes all of this care possible. Well, Andrew, I really do appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on and speak to this issue. I know it's one that's uh, getting a lot of attention right now, and I don't think that attention is going to uh, decrease anytime soon. So uh, we'll happy to do this with you today, and, and maybe we can uh, you know, talk about it more here in the not-too-distant future, because I think uh, this issue is going to be front and center for a while. But thanks so much for today. Great to connect with you. Thanks so much, Jeff. That was Andrew Longhurst, Research Associate with the BC Office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. So yeah, there are now 93,000 people on the wait list in BC for elective surgeries. Uh, The province says to make up for that backlog, operating rooms will be performing surgeries in the evenings and on Saturdays and Sundays starting June 15th to October 15th. And it says that new OR rooms will be open wherever it is possible to do so. So clearly steps are being taken. Um... Weird to see stuff happening here on Saturdays and Sundays and evenings when talking about that operating room work that is going to be happening. The cost for this year alone to make up the backlog, just for this year uh, to make up that backlog of electric surgeries, will be $250 million. Um, Nearly 75% of those costs are expected to be for staffing. All right, well, let's take a quick break here. I'm going to come back. I'll be talking with the TNRD Film Commission, so stick around, and the Jeff Andrea Show will be right back. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thanks for being with me here on Friday, May the 8th. COVID-19, of course, has put a wrench in a lot of industries, particularly ones that rely on larger groups, such as entertainment. We won't be seeing things like concerts in person anytime soon. But what about films? What about movies and TV shows? What is going to happen there? I mean, people are binging and racing through content like it's nobody's business, right? That happens on the regular, but even more so during a time when we're all asked to stay in our homes as much as possible. Well, on Wednesday, Premier John Horgan indicated that it may not be long before we start seeing some filming activity start resuming here in British Columbia. If we're doing well and we see more opportunities, we'll be opening up more businesses like more parks with camping. Film and television production is very close. While more than 60,000 BC film and TV workers wait for official word on when they can get back to work on live action productions, members of a working group are considering a slew of options, including masks and shift work to accommodate anticipating long-term physical distancing requirements. Directors, producers, special effects technicians, technical and support workers, actors and safety personnel all took part in a virtual town hall on Facebook recently for workers to get the latest info from those weighing different options that could 
could get them back on set. Well, what about here in the Kamloops region, right? Ashcroft had TV crews in for the Twilight Zone earlier in the year, and there was some work done on Jurassic World 3 in Merritt as well. But what about projects that were scheduled to get underway uh, in the near future? Well, they recently caught up with the commissioner of the Thompson-Nicola Regional District Film Commission, Vicki Weller. Vicki, what is happening with projects that were scheduled to film in the region? Do you know what the possible plans are right now? It's totally up in the air. We don't know. If we're on lockdown, if it's not, uh, you know, what they want to... It, it all comes down to your provincial and federal government, really. There's the lead on what's safe and what's not, and what the company says best practices. I know they're looking at Canada from the United States perspective to see what's Canada doing. You know, um, a lot of people are feeling like who can go in and w companies that'll go in and to a house and, you know, sterilize it. Well, you can sterilize it, but if you go in for, um, like, use a, a misting that says, no, you can't go in until the misting's away and that's two days, well, that may not work for a schedule for a film crew. Um, but on the other hand, what are your choices? How big are film clues typically, right? I mean, we're, we're still sitting here with groups not allowed to be bigger than 50. So just how many people could we be talking about here? I'd say anywhere between one, from 120 to up to 220. You know, that's a typical crew. Could go anywhere. It could be larger. Okay. could be a little bit smaller. But basically anywhere in there. Now you're looking at crews of, of less than 50. And that's including, including the actors. Uh, what do you do when you have a camera and somebody else has to look through it? So what's happening to try and organize? There's clearly going to be a lot of planning that will be needed to have projects move forward while keeping health and safety front and center. Well, they estimated that there's 60,000 people, more than 60,000 people directly, directly working on crews and things like that or in the industry. That are doing, and they're not working. So you can believe that all the union reps, all the uh, all their segments, everybody, anything that has anything to do with it in terms of organization policy, um, they're working 24/7 on it. So they're clearly working on it. But what what does that work entail? So you have WorkSafe BC, and you have all the film commissioners across the. Canada on a task force. You have um, Creative BC, CAO on the uh, recovery, BC recovery task force. Um, so you, it's, it's totally on the radar for sure. We're seeing some inquiries right now. Um, they're trying to figure out how to stay safe because we're not like the live music industry. In that, you know, they're saying not until 2021, they're going to have, you know, some events, things like that. We're not like them. Uh, this mm -hmm. is an industry. So how do we make it work with a crew that used to having so large, make it smaller, but still quality? Right. Uh, again, that, then you start looking at the writers. Are they writing? Um, filming in studios, um, working with backlots. Um writing um to be outside because in uh in you know wide open spaces and what would that look like if you have to have a crew less than 50 uh, some are saying well should we be testing before anybody comes on set and then how long will that take till they actually film and when they actually film 
you know, how many hours will they have? Right. Before you have to have turnaround and things like that. Like it could take an hour and a half just to process the crew. We don't know. So you have all these various things. From our perspective, from the TNRD perspective, or from the film commission here, we're reaching out and documenting all places and all all uh, hotels that are willing to have people come there, isolate, hotels, motels, mm-hmm. isolate if they come from the States or whatever, and then work from there um, as they work on a set so that in a sense, even though you could be, say, home with your family, you know, uh, you would have to go somewhere and stay in a motel, maybe isolate for a while, and then only work with the film crew, only come in contact with them. And you can either have people stay, uh, isolate and stay and work sort of in an isolated environment when you go on to set, or they could film, uh, say, a small movie where it takes place in a summer camp where you live there and stay there and isolate there, and there's the storyline. All right, Vicki. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Really do appreciate it. Okay. That was Vicki Weller, the commissioner of the TNRD Film Commission. Well, on that note, it's about time for me to wrap things up here today. So I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just knowing you enjoyed our time while it lasted. Have a great sunny weekend, and I'll be back here on Monday at noon.